0: عن حديث 7425 قال الإمام البخاري حدثنا موسى عن إبراهيم قال حدثنا ابن شهاب عن عبيد بن السباق أن زيد بن ثابت وقال الليث حدثني عبد الرحمن بن خالد عن ابن شهاب عن ابن السباق أن زيد بن ثابت حدثه قال أرسل إلي أبو بكر فتتبعت القرآن حتى وجدت آخر صورة التوبة مع أبي خزيمة الأنصار لم أجدها مع أحد غيره لقد جاءكم رسول من انفسكم حتى خاتمه براءه حدثنا يحيى ابن بكير قال حدثنا عن يونس بهذا وقال مع أبي خزيمة الأنصاري. this narration then with the various chains and the variations of it, it refers to this final section of this surah, the final section of the surah, the Shahid, فَإِنْ تَوَلَّوْ فَقُلْ حَسْبِيَ اللَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ, إِلَّهُ عَلَيْهِ تَوَكَّلْتَ وَهُوَ رَبُّ الْعَرْشِ الْعَظِيمِ Surah Tawbah, ayah number 129. Surah Tawbah, ayah number 129. In that ayah, it very clearly mentions, Wahua Rabbul Arshil Azim, that He is the Lord of the Great Throne. The narration of Sheikh Ali Thaimin highlights Zaid ibn Thabit, may Allah be pleased with him, was Abu Bakr and Umar, may Allah be pleased with them, tasked to follow and gather the Quran. Zaid ibn Thabit was one of the individuals who was given the responsibility from Abu Bakr and Umar, may Allah be to follow up and gather the Quran. وهذا هو الجمع الأول للقرآن على أهد أبي بكر رضي الله عنه So that was the first time the whole of the Quran was put together Collected And that was at the time of أبو بكر الصديق رضي الله عنه أما جمع عثمان رضي الله عنه فإنما كان جمعه على حرف واحد وهي لغة قريش as for the collection of Uthman رضي الله عنه, That is as it's understood famously That it was to bring it upon one tongue Meaning you have all of the different qira'at You have the variations in the recitation So that was what brought together What is now known as the Uthmani Mus'haf Unto that one tongue, the tongue of the Quraysh There uh, uh recitation of it. Initially the people used to recite the Quran upon their different variations. An example of that you may have noticed here, for example, when you read Alhamdulillah rabbil Alameen, Ar Rahim and then Malikyomiddin and you hear also Maliki Yaumiddin, that's the type of thing that is being mentioned here. That initially the people used to recite upon their tongues, upon their recognition of those letters, how they do it. But then in the time of Uthman, Radiallahu Anhu, he gathered all of the mushaf upon one recitational method, upon one uh, language as they say. So upon one way, one recitation, one Uh, criteria of that recitation. That was the gathering when Uthman gathered it. As for the time of Abu Bakr, that was the actual gathering of the Quran because the Quran, it was memorized by different Sahaba, of course. It was also written down on parchments and papers, but not as a complete Quran. Sections were written down by this Sahabi other sections were written down on a paper by another Sahabi. Another Sahabi had sections of it written down. Nobody had the full Quran written down. But that was the purpose here when they were sent to gather all of the Quran from everybody to make it into one entity together written down. فَلَمَّا كَانَ فِي عَهْدِ عِثْمَانَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ وَإِنْتَشَرَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ فِي كُلِّ مَكَانَ At the time of Ithman, رضي الله عنه when the Islamic lands increased, the conquerings increased, the lands increased, Islam spread, Muslims spread about to different places. بَعْضُهُمْ يَقْرَأْ وَبَعْضُهُمْ يَقْرَأْ بهذا. Some of them were reciting in one way, others were reciting in another way. Maliki Yomid Deen, Maliki Yomid Deen, etc. Khafar Ithman wa mamma who mina sahaba an yaka awantata fitna bayl al Muslimin. Ithman radiallahu anhu and those with him feared that a fitna may occur between the Muslims, these different recitational methods. Fastashar al sahaba, so he consulted. The other companions and he united them upon that one recitational method. the method of Quraysh. al فَاجْتَمَعَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ وَلِلَّهُ الْحَمْدُ عَلَى ذَلِكَ وَحَصَلَ بِهَذَا خَيْرٌ كَثِيرٌ The Shaykh highlights that these different recitational methods that you hear now, Maliki yawm الدِّينِ din Maliki yawm they are actually all technically one method. That is all one recitational method. That isn't the actual point of the different types of languages they used to recite with. But that is to highlight an example of what is being meant. That they all used to have their different recitational methods with their pronunciations and their languages. These now that you have these different recitations, Maliki Yomiddin, Maliki Yomidin, or yu'minuna and Yuminuna, etc. Technically all of these are one recitational method upon one source. So in those days it was something far greater in terms of the differences in those recitational methods. But that is simply there to give you an understanding of what is meant. So, because they had those different tongues, different dialects you may call it. Uthman radiallahu anhu feared that it may cause a fitnah amongst the Muslims, these different methods of reciting and these different tongues that they had. So he united it upon the method of Quraysh. And the method of Quraish has these variations in it now that you see the qiraat also. إذا إذا so when Zaid رضي الله عنه and the others were sent to go and find all of the pieces of the Quran and put it together. He said that there was a certain section, the end of Surah Al-Tawbah that he didn't find with anyone except Abu Khuzayma Al-Ansari. He was the only person he found who had this section. So now the Shaykh says, how can we rely upon the narration of just one person for that part of the Quran. The narration of only one person. Firstly, the Shaykh says, Abu
1: Khuzaymah
0: the Prophet had said about him had mentioned about him that his testimony is equivalent to the testimony shahadatuhu bi shahadati Is to the equivalent of two men Indicating his level of authenticity So he was somebody superior in that Secondly All of the other companions Did they accept that from him or not? All of them accepted it All of the companions accepted his section, the end of Surah Al-Tawbah, he was the only one with it, but they all took it and they all accepted it. All of the Sahaba accepted it, how is anybody now going to come along and say, we can't accept it? When all of the Sahaba, they took it and accepted it as the Quran. Thirdly, Allah says in the Quran, إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَزَّلْنَا الدِّكْرِ وَإِنَّا لَهُ لَحَافِظُونَ That indeed we have revealed this Dhikr, the Qur'an And we will preserve it So the preservation of the Qur'an is promised by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala That Allah will preserve this Qur'an So there is no possibility of anything being wrong, incorrect, missing, added Allah has preserved this Qur'an So that section there is certainly from the Qur'an. Was it not, then it would not have entered into the Qur'an. Allah has preserved the Qur'an. And that's why when you hear the Shia, or some of the sects of the Shia, they claim that the Qur'an we have now is not the actual Qur'an that was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ. They say that this Qur'an is actually missing, it's deficient. Some of them say, up to two-thirds of the original Quran are missing from what we've got now. Shia. They say, up to two-thirds of the original Quran is missing. And some of them say, a third. Where is it missing? Where is it gone? What do they say? They say, Abu Bakr and Umar, and anhuma, took that third or two-thirds of the Qur'an, hid it, concealed it, and never put it together into the compilation. When they gathered it all, two-thirds of it, Abu Bakr and Umar hid, and never allowed to be put into the final compilation of the Qur'an, kept that, concealed it, and nobody knew of it then. Why would they do that? Why would they take a third, two-thirds of the Qur'an out? And conceal it And never put it into the compilation And never allow that to be spread Why? They say upon their deviance and misguidance That those thirds or two thirds of the Quran Were full of praise for Ali رضي الله عنه. That a third of the Quran If not two thirds of the Quran Was all about Ali رضي الله عنه. So Abu Bakr and Umar when they saw that, they took those sections, concealed them, and never allowed them to come into the final compilation, fearing that the people would want Ali to overtake their Khilafah, and that they would not have their khilafa. They didn't want that, so they concealed that from Ali from all of the people, stole that part of the Qur'an and concealed it. That is what they say. From their complete and utter misguidance on top of the fact that they even claim in the first place that jibreel <laughs> salam he was treacherous betrayed the trust jibreel a.s. they say was supposed to take the quran to <laughs> ali radiallahu anhu he was supposed to be the final messenger Ibn Abi Talib was supposed to be the final messenger. Jibreel was supposed to take the Quran to him and he made a mistake and took it to Muhammad That is the level of their misguidance. That is the level of the misguidance that they are upon. So Allah says he will preserve the Quran so certainly it is preserved and even if it was only found with one companion that section it is preserved and accepted without doubt. وبيهاذا, and that's why نَعْرِفُ مَا ذَكَرَهُ بَعْضُ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ أَنَّ مَنْ أَنْكَرَ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ فَإِنَّهُ كَافِرٌ Some of the scholars have therefore mentioned that anybody who rejects even a letter of the Quran is kafir. Anybody who rejects even a letter of the Qur'an is kafir because he is therefore denying the statement of Allah that Allah has preserved the Qur'an. If a person rejects any section of the Qur'an saying, no, that's not Qur'an, then it is as though he is denying, or rather not as though, he is, he is denying the statement of Allah that Allah has preserved the Qur'an, claiming that it's not preserved. This isn't Qur'an, that isn't Qur'an. So, that would therefore be kufr, denying the verses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَكَذَلِكَ مُخَالِفٌ لِسَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And it would also be in opposition to the way of the Sahaba, the way of the salaf, all of whom accepted this Qur'an, all of it acknowledged and understood. فَالْقُرْآنَ وَلِلَّهِ الْحَمْدِ مَحْفُوظُ The Qur'an and all praises to Allah is preserved The Qur'an is preserved And even this Mus'haf that you have now The Mus'haf that you see You know this Mus'haf is not printed on computers This Mus'haf that you pick up The Uthmani green Mus'haf The Saudi Arabia copies as people call it That isn't printed by computer you know It is handwritten that is a handwritten Mus'haf And then afterwards digitally done whatever they do and then printed etc But originally handwritten So it is preserved Memorized by the people in their chests Written upon the Mus'haf It is preserved that Quran Lam يُعْقَسْ Nothing has been taken away from it It is not deficient anywhere lam yuzad fihi شَيْءٍ Nothing has been added into it وقد يكون في بعض القراءات حذف الواء مثلا تحذف الواو من بعض القراءات السمعيه وهذا لا يضر لأن المسلمين اتفقوا على تلقي هذه القراءات بالقبول حتى ما حذف منها حرف لكن ما أجمع القراء عليه فإنه لا يجوز إنكار شيء منه أبدا so here the says not anything has been taken away from the Quran. Nothing has been added into the Quran. It is perfectly preserved. Person may say though, in these different recitational methods you have now, some of those recitational methods, a wow may be missing for example. A wow may be missing for example in some of the recitations. So isn't that now decreasing or making deficient? the Quran, what has been accepted and agreed upon in terms of the recitational methods from the times of old, that does not harm anything. That is not considered as having removed anything of the Quran. That is a recitational method of the Quran. It is the Quran still. So that is not something to be concerned over for a person to say, but this letter is missing in that recitation or such and such a letter is missing from the other recitation. Those are certain recitational methods, all of which are derived from the language of Quraysh. Which reminds me of the times in Medina, there used to be a Qur'an class every week. In all of the university years, all of the semesters, every semester you have to have uh, one Qur'an class at least. So in that Qur'an class, the students used to recite to the teacher, The the teacher would correct the recitation of the students he would check the memorization of the students, etc. One time we were in the class and a student began to recite. A student began to recite. He was reciting, reciting, reciting. Alhamdulillah, all good, nothing really to mention. The teacher said, No problem, good. He was about to move on to the next student. One of the brothers put his hand up in shock and amazement. He said, Sheikh, the number of mistakes he made in that recitation and you're saying good carry on to the next person did you not notice how many mistakes he made يؤمنون, he's saying يومنون, missing the Hamza out altogether how many times did he miss the Hamza out you didn't spot it all these other points he pointed out of course all of these points that he pointed out were simply differences in the recitation the قراءة. not mistakes but he didn't know so in shock and amazement, Shaykh, what are you talking about? How many times did he miss the Hamza? You, I'm making it a Wa instead of a Hamza. And he didn't know that this was the different recitations that are permissible and incorrect. The scholars do say, though, you should not use recitations that are unknown to the people. You should not come along one day, mashaAllah, you've got your degree in Quran in the qiraat, so you come back and you start leading the prayer, and you decide, today I'll do some of these other qiraat, show the people something, and then during the prayer you get everybody saying, subhanallah, subhanallah, the scholars, they say, you should not utilize a form of recitation from those methods that are permissible amongst the people who do not know them and recognize them rather recite in the way that is recognized by the people and here the majority of the people recognize Hafs so that is what should be done now in this masjid there is also a recognition over the years of Qarun so those types of recitations can be used they are known by the people people now understand you can say Maliki Yawm instead of what most people learnt as it has become understood so okay but you wouldn't do certain recitations that are unknown to the people that is not advised as the scholars say then moving on Qala ibn asad Qala an sa'id an an Anibni Abbas radhiallahu anhuma qal, Kanin Nabi'u sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqulu inda'l-karb, La ilaha illallah al alimul haleem. La ilaha illallah rabbul arshil azim. La ilaha illallah rabbul samawati wa rabbul ardi wa rabbul arshil kareem. This narration, it is clear where the point, the Shahid is. In the narration it mentions that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi used to say At the times of Al-Karb And what is the times of Al-Karb? Times of difficulty When you face a situation, a scenario, some need or difficulty, some desperate situation, some hard situation. Then the Prophet used to make this dua. And he used to say, La ilaha illallah al al haleem. La ilaha illallah rabbul arshil azim. The Lord of the great throne. La ilaha illallah rabbul samawati wa rabbul ard. The Lord of the heavens and the earth. Rabbul Arshil Karim, the Lord of the Noble Throne. So, in this du'a, there is affirmation again of the throne of Allah, Subhanahu wa Taala. You notice here that there are two descriptions given of the throne of Allah, Rabbul Arshil Al and Rabbul Arshil Karim. Two descriptions are given of the throne of Allah in this narration. The first, Al-Azim, meaning Al-Azim, greatness. The second, Al-Kareem, Al-Karam. وَلَيْسَ الْمُرَادُ بِالْكَرَمِ الْبَذْلِ وَالْعَطَاءِ لَأَنَّ الْعَرْسِ لَا يَرْضُلُ وَلَا يَعْطِي لَكِنْ يُرَادُ بِهِ الْحُسْنُ وَالْبَهَاءِ al Karim Normally Karim means what? You say somebody is Kareem Generous But that is not the meaning of this year It doesn't translate into the meanings of generous What do they put down in your English? Who has the English? What do they put down for it? You know this amazes me People have the English in front of them Are you not following anything? Is it just sat there? How can you have the English in front of you, and you ask for something, nobody knows where we are? Huh? Huh? Honourable throne. They put down as Honourable throne. Karim, like we said, normally indicates somebody generous, but here it doesn't mean generous, we're not saying generous as a description of their throne, the throne doesn't give anything. The meaning of it here, as the Shaykh says, is al husnu al baha Of its beauty. The beauty of the throne. The, the magnificence and the beauty of the throne. Rabbul arshil kareem, the throne is kareem, meaning its beauty and its uh, magnificence. That is the meaning of it here. وَعَلَى هَدَا فَيَكُونُ الْعَرْشُ عَظِيمًا فِي حَجْمِهِ كَرِيمًا فِي صفاته وَمَنظَرِهِ Therefore, when you put these two descriptions together, that the throne of Allah is رَبُّ الْعَرْشِ الْعَظِيمِ and that it is رَبُّ الْعَرْشِ الْكَرِيمِ It therefore indicates the, the, the huge size of the throne, the greatness of the throne, and the beauty of the throne. The greatness of the throne and the beauty of the throne. That is the two descriptions that would come together in this meaning. As a side benefit, as sheik Al-Thaymeen mentions, or somebody tell us what the side benefit is from those who don't have the Arabic or the English available to you. Uh, or oh, the English is okay, in fact there is no explanation there. What is another benefit you can derive from this narration that the Prophet at the times of difficulty would make this dua ورب ورب What do you notice clearly throughout this dua? That it's repeating La ilaha illallah That every section of the du'a is upon the tawheed of Allah Every section of the du'a is emphasizing the tawheed of Allah And that is something of a benefit the shaykh mentions That you notice this in this du'a And you will notice it throughout the Qur'an as Ibn al-Qayyim mentions And you'll notice it throughout the other ad'iyah and adhkaah The other supplications and the remembrances of Allah all of them revolve around the Tawheed of Allah. That's true. It has an emphasis upon Tawheed The whole du'a is based upon Tawheed, Every sentence emphasizing Tawheed. And then You could even note That all of the different aspects of Tawheed are mentioned within this du'a The aspect of the rububiyyah of Allah The aspect of the uluhiyyah of Allah And the aspect of the names and attributes of Allah And that was a benefit brought forth by one of the attendees and therefore that attendee can now explain that benefit and what Ar-Rububiyyah is and Al-Uluhiyyah is and Al-Asma'u Wa Sifat is because this hadith incorporates all of these aspects of Tawhid within it. So what is Ar-Rububiyyah that this hadith incorporates within it? Rububiyyah <laughs> refers to the Tawheed of Allah in His Lordship. Which means what? To single out Allah Subh'anaHu Wa taala with His actions. This we've done so many times everybody should have it memorized by now. The basics of Tawheed. The basics of Tawheed. You hear all of the time Al-Rububiyya, Al-Uluhiyya, Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat. Al-ru-bu-biyya, in English they say The Lordship of Allah What does that mean? It means that we single out Allah In His actions With regards to His actions We single out Allah What actions then? The creation of the heavens and the earth That is an action that only Allah did The creation of the heavens and the earth We single out Allah and say, only Allah, creator of the heavens and the earth Giving life and death That is an action specific and unique and only to Allah Sustaining all of this universe and controlling it all Something only solely for Allah Bringing down the provisions and the rain for us from Allah So those are actions that occur that are purely Allah Uh, actions that Allah does. So we affirm those actions are specific to Allah alone, that is the rububiyyah, the Lordship of Allah, specifying and making single and unique those actions to Allah alone. Nobody else gives life and death, nobody else participates in creating the heavens and the earth, in running the heavens and the earth. They are actions specific to Allah. Al-uluhiyyah So al was to single out Allah with his actions Al-Uluhiyyah is to single out Allah with our actions The simplest way to remember it Arububiyyah to single out Allah with his actions Al-Uluhiyyah to single out Allah with our actions now So what are our actions? Every type of worship all of our worship, every single aspect of our worship, all of our actions in the heart, upon the tongue, upon the limbs, are singled out only for Allah. That is the worship of Allah. And then والصفات, the names and attributes of Allah, that Allah has the most perfect and beautiful of names and attributes. Asma al-Husna. Indeed Allah has the most perfect and beautiful of names and attributes. And they are specific to Allah. And you do not perform the tahreef, the taqeel, etc. We've done all of those topics elsewhere in detail. So this dua incorporates all of those aspects of tawheed. A person may say, What are these three categories of Tawheed you're talking about? Is there a hadith that tells us about these categories of Tawheed? Is there a narration? Is there an ayah that clarifies these categories of Tawheed? So what are you going to say? Now that the noble attendee has brought up the issue what are you going to say? It's directly relevant to our topic, we're studying Kitab al-Tawheed These are actually prerequisites To studying Kitab al-Tawheed These are things you should already know As you're studying Kitab al-Tawheed here So somebody says to you now, those three categories that you're saying are within this du'a Who told you about these three categories? rububiyah, uluhiyah, names and attributes Tawheed is tawheed. What's these three categories? Where do they come from? What are you going to say? They are mentioned in the Quran. Did the Prophet mention there are three categories of taqiyid? Is there a Hadith telling us about the three categories of taqiyid? Is there an Ayah mentioning the three categories of taqiyid? Are those categories categorized explicitly in the Quran and Sunnah? There is no specific categorization. Anyone else? It mentions Al-Rububiyya, Al-Uluhiya, Al-Asma'u, Sifat. I don't come across those words in Al-Fatiha. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim are two names of Allah. Does it say the word Ar-Rububiya in there, Al-Uluhiya in there, Al-Asma'u, Sifat in there? So you have to explain because there are some people out there who say that this is a bid'ah you people are upon. They say it is a bid'ah, this classification of al al-uluhiya, al asma wa sifat. It's a bid'ah, they say. The Sahaba never mentioned those categories, the Prophet never mentioned those categories, those words don't exist anywhere. al al-uluhiya, al asma wa sifat. So they say it's a bid'ah for you to make up this categorization. Or other people come along and say, okay, you've got this categorization of three, I've got a categorization of four and they want to add on something extra to try and defend some deviation they may be on they say you're making categories I'm gonna make my categories so how do you explain all of this? you tell them that these categorizations are nothing new they are nothing outside of what's in the Quran these categorizations are exactly from the Quran they are in the Quran. How so? You give the example of a letter for example. When you write a letter in school, they teach you how to write a letter. When you're doing your English GCSE. They teach you how to write a letter and they say a letter has to have an introduction, something at the beginning, an intro. Then after that you'll have what's known as the main body and then you have at the bottom a conclusion a simple breakdown of your document you're gonna send an introduction, a main body of the text the actual issue and then some type of conclusion at the bottom that's how you're gonna write your letter on this particular topic to this particular person. An intro the main core of the subject and then a small conclusion at the end that's how you write a letter. However in your letter, are you going to actually write brackets introduction and then put down your little introduction, then in brackets main body of letter and then put down your actual bits and your complaint whatever and then at the bottom conclusion and then you're going to write down what your conclusion is. Are you going to put in brackets those three parts just to make sure the person understands your letter, they understand this is the introduction, this is the main thing and this is the conclusion Do you write those things in or not? Of course not. You don't write those things in. You don't write, this is my introduction. And then you do your introduction. You don't write, this is the main issue now. And then write what that is. You don't write, this is the conclusion now. And then write it. You write your letter. From reading that letter, it becomes blatant and obvious how it works. There's an opening section where you've given some type of intro into what this issue is about. Then in the middle bulk of the letter, you've explained the problem. In the bottom of the letter, you've given some summary and conclusion as to what the, uh, the, the solutions are going to be or whatever. That is clear from the layout of the letter and the way it's done. So even though in the letter, you don't write intro, main body, conclusion. Your letter, your letter is written in that format though. That's why in GCSE English, when they put those letters in front of you and they say, where is the intro? Where is the uh, uh, main body and where is the conclusion? You read it and you work it out. That first paragraph is the intro. The middle long paragraph is the main body. That bottom paragraph is the conclusion. Even though it's not written there. So now, you have an intro, you have a main body, you have a conclusion. Even though that's never ever written in the letter. That is a type of example, or scenario to explain this. In the Quran, it doesn't say that this ayah is a rububiya in brackets, and then tells you the ayah. Doesn't say this ayah is al uluhiya, and then explain the ayah or mention the ayah. Doesn't say this ayah is al-asma'u wa-sifat, and then mention the ayah. It just mentions the ayat, but when you examine, you can realize this one is a rububiya. It's talking about the actions of Allah that we must specify to Him. This ayah is talking about al uluhiya our actions that we need to worship Him. This ayah is talking about the names and attributes of Allah. So everything is there, but it's not labeled for you there. But it's all there. There's nothing new. That is what's exactly there. So now when you come to Al-Fatiha, Alhamdulillahi (laughs) Rabbil Alameen all oh, prayers be due to Allah, Rabb of all of everything in creation. He is the Rabb of everything. The creator, the provider, the one who gives life and death, the sustainer, all of that is the Rububiyyah. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen and then Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. They are two of the names of Allah. You have the Tawheed of the names and attributes. Maliki names and attributes you could say too. إِيَّاكَ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ You alone We worship and you alone We seek aid and assistance from That is Tawheed al uluhiyah singling our worship to Allah So these categories are not an innovation, they are nothing They are nothing new It is exactly what's in the Quran just being explained That this is the Tawheed of al-Rububiyyah This is the Tawheed of al uluhiyah It's an explanation of what's there. It is not bringing about anything new. It is simply classifying, explaining to you what is there. And that's why, yes, you may have scholars that may explain it slightly differently. Some scholars will explain Tawheed in two categories. And those categories are. Huh? al and the other one? al-Ma'rifah. Some of the scholars may say It is the tawheed of understanding And the tawheed of action To make it simple Tawheed of understanding You must understand the rububiyyah of Allah And the names and attributes of Allah Tawheed of action In terms of al uluhiya That you must act with all of your actions For the sake of Allah alone Two categories explaining it Al-ma'rifah So, with those categories, it is nothing of an innovation, it is exactly what is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And if they want an example, then the easiest way to remember the example, as we used to say, if they say to you, give us an example from the Qur'an of these categories of Tawheed then, you say they are there, they're not labeled, but they are there. What's one of the easiest ways to give them examples? One is obviously, we just done Al-Fatiha and the other, Surah Al-Nas. Easiest way to remember the beginning of the Qur'an and the end of the Qur'an Al-Fatiha has all categories in there like we just mentioned Then at the end, an nas has all of the categories in there too Beginning and end, all of it with those categories, everything in the middle is Those categories too قُلْ <النَّاس> Indicating a rububiyyah Then Malikinnas. Malik, you could say names and attributes. Ilah al-Nas. al Uluhiyah, The ilah of the people, the one that they worship. So, that is something clear from the Qur'an itself. After that, then we move on to the narration. And Imam al-Bukhari says, Qala Muhammad ibn Yusuf. Sufyan. عَنْ عامر بْنَ يحيى عَنْ أَبِيهِ عَنْ أَبِي سَعِيدٍ الْخُدْرِ عَنِ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم قَال أو قَال النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم الناس يصعقون يوم القيامة فَإِذَا أَنَا بِمُوسَى آخِذٍ بِقَائِمَةٍ مِّن قَوَائِمِ الْعَرْشِ In the next narration of the same وَقَالَ الْمَاجِشُونَ عَنْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ بِنْ أَلْفَضْلِ عَنْ أَبِي سَلَمَةً عَنْ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةً عَنْ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم قَالْ فَأَكُونُ أَوَّلَ فإذا موسى آخذ بالعرش. And in the, naam, those two. These two narrations talk about the day of judgment when everybody will be uh, unconscious and then when they are raised up again and they regain consciousness again and they are raised up it's mentioned that the first person to be raised up then and to gain that consciousness is muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam he says i am the first to be raised up ana awwal man i am the first to be raised up but then he says sallallahu when he is uh, the first of them he notices already that musa alayhi salam is holding on to the Throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the Prophet says, I don't know whether Musa alayhi salam arose before me or whether he never was unconscious in the first place. The point is what though? That he sees Musa alayhi salam clinging to the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Clinging to the throne of Allah. All of the people who want to say it's a metaphor, it's a simile. How are you going to explain this? That he is clinging to the throne of Allah. Actually, clinging to the throne of Allah. And with all of the other narrations of how the angels will carry the throne of Allah, it is a real throne. It is not a simile or a metaphor for anything. So the shaykh says, a shahid arsh, uh, holding from one of, uh, like what you may say, the legs, one of the legs of the throne uh, وَعَلَيْهِ فَيَكُونَ الْعَرْشُ مَحْدُودًا لَكِنَّهُ لَيْسَ صَغِيرًا بَلْ هو كبير وَعَظِيمٌ كَمَا اللَّهُ سبحانه وتعالى بذلك. And we know that the throne of Allah, it is something huge, something magnificent uh, and as it's mentioned, it is the ceiling of all of creation We did the example before in the hadith, that if all of the heavens and the earth compared to the footstool of Allah are only like a ring in a vast desert, then the footstool of Allah compared to the throne becomes like only a ring in a vast desert. Then after that we have some more narrations that are emphasizing the highness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, أنا باب قول الله تعالى تعرج الملائكة والروح إليه وقوله جل ذكره إليه يسعد الكلم الطيب وقال أبو جمره عن ابن عباس بلغ أبو ذر ما بعث النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال لأخيه أعلم لي these narrations are now highlighting that Allah is the most high. Coming on from the chapter we just done regarding the throne of Allah, it is now emphasizing other evidences to prove but Allah is not everywhere upon the deviant aqeedah of some Allah is the most high And there are several evidences indicating Allah is the most high Above all of the creation, the seven heavens and the earth And these are some of them In the actual chapter heading it mentions That the angels go Where? To Allah The angels go Above and up to Allah Ascend The angels ascend to Him If the angels ascend Then that indicates Allah is above the Most High In the other ayah (laughs) إِلَيْهِ Saadul الْكَلِمُ الْطَيِّبِ The righteous word goes Up to Allah So the fact that things are mentioned going up to Allah Indicates that Allah is above You have these ayat telling you that things ascend to Allah So therefore Allah is above That is clear in the evidence So هذا الباب ذكره ذكر على العرش لأن على العرش خاص وهذا الباب العام The previous chapter was talking about Allah being above the throne this chapter is generally about Allah being the Most High and being above all of the creation, not specific to the throne, but generally that Allah is the Most High, is above all of the creation. وَالْعُلُو لَهُ أَدِلَّةِ مِنْ هَا مَا تَرْجَمَ بِهِ الْبُخَارِيُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ فِي قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَ تَعَرُجُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ Malak إِلَيْهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ جَبْعُ مَلَكُ وَأَصْلُهُ مَلْأَكُ و وأصل all of that to explain the source word of angels in Arabic, malaika It comes from a word which means message, the one who delivers the message. So the angels are the messengers of Allah. They are the messengers of Allah. And Allah mentioned in the Quran ja'il al-mala'ikati Allah has made the angels the messengers uli ajniha with wings So how many wings do the angels have How many angels do the wings have Huh? What did I say? Amen. did not even notice. So how many wings do the angels have? That, as a side point, when it occurs, that you mix your words up the wrong way around in the sentence, as occurred just there, apparently as you claim, then it's mentioned in the Arabic language Grammatically, there's a rule for that. Grammatically, in the Arabic language, they understand that this occurs in the speech of the people, and it's mentioned in the books of grammar, and they have names for it and rules for it, when somebody accidentally swaps two words around in a sentence, just as a side point. And some of you, inshallah ta'ala, will get to that soon. So here, how many wings do the angels have? How many? Four. All the angels are four in each. Six. Anybody else? Hadith mentions seven hundred. Eight. Each angel has different amount of wings So some angels might have less, some have more Correct Some angels have two wings Some angels have Three wings Some angels have Four wings Some angels have more Jibril alayhis salam. it's mentioned he had 600 wings Of the beautiful colors And the pearls and the gems falling from them The angels have different numbers of wings And the angels are a creation From the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala That we believe in and have Iman in It is one of the pillars of Iman A Muslim cannot reject the existence of the angels But what are the angels? Are the angels females, for example? Often, angels are depicted as female. And people say such and such is an angel, referring to a female. So what is the aqeedah of Ahl-Sunnah regarding the angels being feminine? Anyone? So we know for definite, the angels are not female, as is widespread amongst the people and they depict the angels to always be women. A sheikh bin Baz was once asked that, sheikh in our hospital, sometimes if a nurse has done a really good job, others may say, you're such an angel, a female nurse. Is this allowed for our female nurses to be referred to in this way for us to say you're such an angel to a woman and the shaykh said no absolutely not because the angels are not women. How do we know that? because in the Quran Allah refutes the mushrikeen for claiming that the angels are the daughters of Allah. They are not the daughters of Allah So that is something known about them. Do the angels have intellect? As Asheikh al-Faymin was once asked, do the angels have intelligence, as we understand intelligence and intellect? Do the angels have that? We know they do exactly what Allah commands them. So, do they have this? Intelligence or intellect or do they just do as Allah commands them without any thought process or such? They have intellect Ashaykh al-Athameen when he was asked the question, do angels have intellect? He said, do you have any intellect? He said, what are you talking about? Of course the angels have intellect of course, they have intelligence. All of those ayat, all of those hadith about the angels, and they talk to each other when the revelation comes and Jibril is descending. The angels say to him, Hada qala rabbukum, qala al-haq. "What did your Lord say?" He tells them, "Allah spoke the truth." They speak. All of these things that are mentioned regarding them, this is from the belief in the angels. So here it talks about uh, the angels. that that the angels ascend to Allah and the fact that the angels ascend up to Allah and the righteous actions ascend up to Allah the righteous speech and actions ascend then that is all proof that Allah is above See all of these evidences now, people who claim Allah is everywhere they need to explain these somehow how are they going to explain these evidences? The angels ascend up to Allah When they believe Allah is everywhere Then why are the angels ascending? Where are they going? Allah is everywhere The righteous actions ascend up to Allah But if they say Allah is everywhere Then why are the actions ascending? Where are they going? This is the reason why the scholars they say ahlul <inaudible> bid'ah, They come to a conclusion on something As they've come to this conclusion that Allah is everywhere So now when they come to these evidences They must somehow interpret them To match the aqidah they've already concluded They've concluded Allah is everywhere Now the evidences are saying Allah is above They must now without choice Distort and alter these evidences, misinterpret them in order to make them match with their aqidah. That's why they say, Ahlul Sunnah, the process is, we look at the Qur'an and the Sunnah and we determine and understand what our aqidah is. Ahlul Bidah, they determine and conclude what their aqidah should be, and then they read the Qur'an and interpret everything to fit with what they've decided already. That is one of the differences scholars mention. So the people of innovation decide Allah is everywhere. Allah has to be everywhere. How can you say Allah is not here? Allah has to be everywhere. So now when they read the Quran and the Sunnah and there are multiple evidences saying that Allah isn't everywhere, Allah is above. Now what they're going to do? They've already decided their aqidah is Allah's everywhere. They are now going to have to distort all of those evidences, misinterpret them to make them fit with the aqidah they've already decided on. So that is why you see them distorting and altering so many of the evidences. What time is it pray today? We're going to stop on that point today then. Any questions or anything on that? In that case we'll conclude there, inshallah ta alaqaria next week at approximately eight PM. Rasulullah anabina Muhammad wa ala earli he wasahbi